It's good to see you this morning, uh, time of worship together. You know, our, in the summer, um, I really appreciate our band so versatile because with so many folks on vacation and stuff, you never know what, Nate never knows what he's going to have any given week. And so last week he was on drums, this week he's on keyboards, next week he'll be on guitar, and then we just switch people around all over the place. So, uh, you know, the next week you may have a full band, next week, you know, whatever we do. So it's great to have that kind of uh, 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 ability to change and do stuff. Last week, we began a series on Daniel, and uh, you guys were lucky if you were second service last week, because I was sharing with the first service folks, last week, uh, first service, uh, if you believe in prayer, uh, I, I believe in prayer even more after last week, because uh, last week, first service, uh, I was fighting a, uh, a sinus infection, and, and first service, literally, uh, I felt like somebody was putting uh, nails in the side of my head, first service, and so I'm not really sure what I said. Uh, I, I was kind of like, I said, some people came to me later and said, oh, God just blessed me so much. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I don't know what I said. What did I say? You know, so, so I, I solved that by second service, though, because what I did after first service is I'd taken a bunch of drugs like at 6 a.m. when I got up or 5.30, and they'd worn off by sec, a first service. But second service, I went after first service, and I decided to fix it, so I went and took three Excedrin and, um, for second service. So last week I was on drugs, second service, and I felt really good. And uh, so uh, that worked really well. So uh, last week, regardless of what I said, we were in, we were in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be looking through the book of Daniel, an Old Testament book. That uh, It's really a really cool book. It's like two books in one. It's 12 chapters. The first six chapters are stories that we learn as kids. If you grew up in church or, or you've been around, you've probably heard some of the stories. Stories like Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We learned those folks. And, and the fiery furnace. I mean, who will ever forget? I mean, if, if any of you got little kids and you watch VeggieTales, okay? VeggieTales? Anybody? Come on. Come on. Be honest. I've seen, I got grandkids. And, and then the coolest VeggieTale one is about, you know, the, the whole fiery furnace thing. It's so cool. Um, I thought about using it this week, but I thought it'd be a little beneath you guys. So, um, but if you want to really understand, go watch Veggie Tales and kids, kids' stories. Okay. But uh, the story last week we began with, chapter 1, is really an introduction to the whole book of Daniel. And what it does is that the first six chapters deal with uh, characters and things that happen in Daniel's life and his friend's life. And we're introduced to, to him and his three friends and also to a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar um, was kind of a psychotic king that we'll learn more about today. And then the last six chapters of Daniel, which we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in, but we're going to kind of highlight toward the end of the summer, is, um, is what we call apocalyptic literature. It's hard even to say. But it's really about end times. It's kind of a vision. It's kind of like the precursor to Revelation. And it's really kind of bizarre. And so we'll kind of get a little bit into that next week because... This week we're going to talk about chapter 2, we're going to be talking about the first half of chapter 2 today, and the second half of chapter 2 next week. So if you've read ahead and want to read that, you can go ahead and read that and be as confused as I was in the second half. So I'll try to figure it out between now and next week for the second half, but uh, I'm not sure I will to your satisfaction because I know a lot of Bible scholars that that second half of chapter 2, they just go nuts over. They don't even know what it means, and they're trying to figure it out. So first half today, though, was very obvious, so we're going to look at that. So if you have your Bible, turn to that as, may, as well. Um, let me ask you another question, starting today. Uh, you ever have dreams that you remember? You ever have weird dreams that you remember? 
You know, maybe a lot of times, maybe it's after you've had a bad meal, you know, bad pizza or something. The next night you have indigestion and say have a bad dream. I don't know what your deal is. But the reality is, is that sometimes we have dreams. We remember them as weird dreams. Chapter 2 is about King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. And it must be a reoccurring dream that, he were, that was so traumatic in his life that he decided he was going to do something about it. And so we're going to start reading that today. Now, in the ancient world, a great amount of significance was placed on dreams. Matter of fact, as I was reading Daniel chapter 2, it reminded me of a story back in Genesis chapter 41. That if you read scripture, you'll understand it. And probably even if you don't, you've, you've probably heard about the story. It's a story of where there's this Pharaoh... Back in Genesis 41, Pharaoh, who had a dream, and it was a dream about, uh, the weird dream was about seven, uh, about 14 cows, uh, seven lean cows, seven fat cows, and it's this dream, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. And so at that time, this guy named, young man named Joseph was in prison there, and he had this relationship with one of the guys in the prison who was a guard, and, and the guy, or one of the guys remembered him. And what it is is that they took him to Pharaoh to interpret his dream. And through this the whole story, what happens is, is that Joseph was able to interpret their dream and had a lot of wisdom. And, and he became a rock star in the country there um, uh, under Pharaoh's uh, re- regime there. And so that happens there. Now, in chapter 2 of Daniel, though, it's a similar story, but even better, in a sense, I think, as we will see today. And we have to be careful about dreams and how we, and how we use them uh, and how we understand dreams because the question that brings to mind here is in this story, God uses this strange dream through a pagan king to do his will. And the question for us today is this, does God still use dreams to communicate his will? Well, I'm not saying he doesn't. But I'm not sure that it's as prevalent as it was in the Old Testament times because God is, there's some other things that we have today that God helps us to understand His will. For instance, when Jesus came, after He left this earth, He left with us what's called the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us clearly, this is not even gray area, clearly that when you become a believer in Christ and accept Christ as Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does, he allows you to understand God's Word in a, in a better way than you ever understood before. And also, we have God's Word. Daniel and his guys didn't have the whole Bible like we do, and so God communicates with us today primarily through we seek in his face through prayer, meditating on his word, and the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives to help us to understand some things. Now, does God still speak to us in dreams? I say he can if he wants to. Be careful because the Bible even warns us in Jeremiah chapter 23 that, that you can be, have dreams and those dreams can be things that are manipulated by Satan itself. And read chapter 23 of Jeremiah. The demonic forces can cause dreams that are, that are dreams to, to be Satan's lies, to make us think that it's taking us a different direction. So be careful to say that just a dream is from God. Okay? Just, just a warning. And that's what Scripture talks about. So today, we want to talk about this. So Daniel chapter 2, in whatever form, if you have the old version, paper, or the new version, iPad, phone, Android, whatever, pull it up, don't play games, just, do, just look at the Scripture, Okay? Okay, let's look at that this morning. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, multiple dreams, plural. 
His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Ever happened to you? You ever have a dream or you go to bed and you're struggling with stuff or, and you keep rehearsing it over and over? And it's not a dream, it's just, you know, you're struggling with stuff. Uh, the thing I found in life so often is that sometimes when we struggle with stuff um, in our lives, God gets our attention sometimes through those things. Is it God ever got your attention through a struggle and thinking about something? He has mine many times. I mean, some of the times in my life, going through times like that, um, God gets our attention. And so when people are going through struggle, it's often a time where God, in a real sense, what he does is he gets our attention and draws us closer to him. Now, my brother-in-law, many, many years ago, I don't know how many years ago it was now, my brother-in-law retired as a lieutenant colonel from the Air Force. And he was in Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and uh, he was there. And he was a, uh, I don't know what the title was, but he wasn't a pilot. He was the guy that, that it was the go-between, the base control officer, what he said his title was, that was basically the guy that, that made sure that the flight, uh, all the mechanics had all the planes ready to fly, and all the pilots knew where they were going, <laughs> okay? Pretty important guy, okay, on this base. And he was at Myrtle Beach Air Force Base then, got sent over, over to Desert Storm, and he was there for... Uh, for uh, the whole deal, you know, the whole deal, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, the whole deal. But he told me, when he got back, he told me, he said, Bill, you wouldn't believe what happened while I was there. Well, I knew about the war. It was on CNN. You could watch everything. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, I've never seen a th- anything like that. If you're like me back then, I was like mesmerized by it every day uh, for those who were here. But the thing is, he said, you know, he said, let me tell you something. Uh, and we were having a conversation about this. He said, he said, I love, I love the people I work with. And he said, let me tell you. The pilots, pilots tend to have a different type of attitude about stuff. He said they tend to be a little cocky. He said you have to be pretty cocky to get in a plane that's full, full of high explosives and, 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 and powered by jet fuel and think you can go in and you're going to be safe. He said you've got to have a little edge to it. He said so most of the time they have kind of, I don't know if it's like Top Gun, the movie, you know, Tom Cruise. But it, he said, but it's very similar to that in some ways. And he said, don't, don't take it that, you know, they're not good guys. But he said, they have an edge. So they kind of like never, th- they're, they think they're indestructible. He said, when I was a desert storm, he said, you know what I spent most of my time doing besides making sure the planes were ready to fly, the, fly their missions and the pilots were where they go? He said, all my time was spent talking to mostly pilots about their relationship to God. He said it wasn't something. He said, because all of a sudden, the stress of combat and all the things they were going through was the thing that made them begin to realize that they were mortal. The stress of life was something that caused them to, in a real sense, change their perspective on life. And so we see God here in, in, uh, in, this, in, in this story in second, second, Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this king, he was troubled. He could not sleep. Now, he doesn't know that God's working in this, but we'll find out later. Verses 2 and 3. So the king summoned the magicians. Now, what does he do about this dream pop? He does what he, every king in that time did. He summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, let me, let me explain something to you. Uh, we in this culture don't go to astrology. Well, you may you read your, you know, your whatever they call a thing. Uh, horoscope, thank you. I don't even know what it is. Your horoscope or whatever, you may do that, you know, but you probably don't go down to the, uh, the, the, the local uh, palm reader or, you know, whatever it is, most of the time when you have a problem, right? I'd hope not, okay. 
But you, there is, in that day, the king had this whole entourage of people who were considered astrologers, and it, and it, and it names all of them there, sorcerers, astrologers, enchanters, magicians. And they're going like, well, it's not like, you know, it's not like uh, magicians we think of today. These are people that supposedly, through this whole process, what they did is they was able to divine, in a sense, what was happening around them. And they didn't do it because they had this special knowledge. They sp- simply did it through their training. And if you read about this in Scripture, read about this in history, they were what's called diviners. They, means, they were called baru. It's a, a Hebrew name. And, it, and they, were, they were not people who were prophetic in any sense. And they would deal with omens and, and, and dreams and stuff by interpreting through strange things. If you want to read some strange things in history, read about these guys. I mean, they would actually interpret things through strange births. You know, it's a two two-headed cow was born or something. So they take that and use that as a, as a way to divine what was happening around them and, and things. They would take sheep's livers, okay? I don't know how you do this. I haven't figured this out yet. And they would take it and look at them some way and study them, and it would give them some kind of knowledge. They had a books and these, and these scrolls and stuff that would teach them how to do these things. So these guys actually couldn't, couldn't tell you what, you know, what was actually... It was just kind of a made-up thing, basically. So the king would have somebody to tell them what was going on. That's what these guys were. And so we see that the first thing here is Nebuchadnezzar puts his trust in what? This kind of cultural experts. And I thought about us, and I'm going like, we don't do that, do we? We wouldn't dare put our, our trust in cultural experts. How many of you read self-help books? Don't raise your hand. Of any type whatsoever. I mean, you're going through, you're going through something, and you're going like, man, I've got to learn how to do that. So you go out, and you, you go, it used to be you went to the bookstore. Now what do you do? You go on Amazon. I mean, that's what I do. I've got an iPad. I've got about 500 books on here, you know? And not all of them's church books. But the reality is you learn stuff. You learn from business. You learn from the experts. You learn from different things in the world. You know, if you want to know about health and fitness, where do you do? You go to experts, and they'll totally confuse you because there's 500 ways of doing the same thing. And, and you go through all these different things. We go to the experts, and that's kind of what we do. And so even though we don't go to the diviners and, and, and astrologers and stuff, we still do it the same way. But the problem is, according to Scripture, and the New Testament particularly talks about this, that is not the smartest thing to do if you have a problem you can't solve. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. So, so Daniel, he goes to this guy, these guys, and he, he has this dream. He's troubled. He doesn't know what to do. But then we come to the good part of the scripture. I love this next few verses. Verses three through, um, excuse me, four through thirteen is kind of the weirdest thing that anybody king probably has ever asked anybody to do. And kings ask people to do all kind of weird things. But this was really strange because in verse four it says, and this is normal. The astrologers answered the king, "May the king live forever. Tell the servants, tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it." Doesn't that sound normal? I mean, you know, you have a dream, tell us what it is, like, like Pharaoh did for Joseph back long ago, and then we'll interpret it. We'll give you some kind of made-up uh, uh, story about what it is, and, and we'll go forward. But this king seemed to have some distrust of these guys. So what does he answer? The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, 
I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Man, what a great guy. I mean, not only does he want them to interpret your dream, he wants them to read your mind. I've talked about the, I was having a conversation out in the lobby about, I was asking a question and, and this young lady said, I can't read your mind. I can't read anybody's mind. I'm going like, yeah, that's true. None of us can read each other's minds, can we? But that's what he wanted, this, this, uh, this king wanted these guys to do. Not only interpret what the dream was, but wanted them to tell him what the dream, what he dreamed. To literally read his mind. And then he says, but, you know, the bad news is that's what's going to happen if you can't read my mind and, and interpret what, I, what, I, what the dream was. But he says, well, here's some good news, though. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. You will win the lottery. That's what's going to happen. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Now, these guys are probably at this point stunned. They're, they're totally stunned because like, oh, nobody do this. What am I going to do? They're probably talking among themselves. And, and he says, once, and then once more they say that they're going like, well, did I hear this right? Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. Just if I haven't made it clear already. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. I don't know if he's talking about the past or the present, but he said, I don't trust you guys to tell me the truth. Hoping the situation will change. So tell me, then, tell me the dream, and I will, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. First, you've got to prove that you can interpret the dream by telling me the dream. Isn't that the craziest thing you've ever heard? I mean, guys and girls, I mean, it'd be like, you know, having a conversation with your spouse at the, at the breakfast table. Honey, I had a dream last night. Can you tell me what it was and what it's about? I've been married 37 years, and I still can't do that. Matter of fact, I think I'm more confused today <laughs> about trying to figure out what my wife means by certain things than I was before. So guys, I, guys I mean, I, it doesn't get any better. I know people say, you know, after a while you kind of think and you finish each other's sentence. That's just because you're talking about words. It's not about what thoughts and everything. It's really confusing sometimes. So I, I know that was encouraging for some of you, but <clears throat> okay. <laughs> okay, so the king comes back and he says to them, he says to them, um, oh, here it am. okay. And he says to them, I think it's the next one. Yes, the astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. Finally, they tell the truth. Nobody can read somebody else's mind. No king, however great and mighty, they say, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king, and this is where the truth comes in, except the gods. And they use the term gods because, once again, remember, this was a, they believed in multitudes of gods. But their understanding is nobody on this earth can do that. And they, these gods, do not live among humans. And they were correct because they weren't even real gods. But then he completes this by saying this. When they heard this, when he heard this, 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 this thought, he says, instead of understanding, 
This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution, immediate execution, of all wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death as well. Now, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was your typical tyrant of that day. I'm not sure he's much different than the typical tyrants of today, but he was of that day. He mistrusted his loyal advisors, although he didn't know who else to turn to. And those who failed him, he treated them brutally. That was pretty typical. But he was also willing to empower and enrich those who did what he wanted them to do because he was in charge of all things. But in the end of the story here, the worldly advisors came up short and they started to blame, started this blame game by studying what they were asked to do and no one else was able to do either. Now, let me just say this, the application. I'm trying to think, what does this mean for us so far? While we and mankind has made great strides in science and medicine and technology, none of those things can do the impossible. They can't. And because no one in science and technology and medicine can read people's minds and know what somebody else has dreamed or, or fix something that is impossible to fix. And it was a desperate, impossible situation here that had no, no earthly answer. Now, let me say this. The good news is this from Scripture. And this is not just about this passage. This is about the whole of Scripture. And any time we look at a passage, we need to keep it in context of the whole of Scripture. Because we get in real trouble if we just take one passage out of context and don't look at the whole of Scripture. The good news is that when the world is without hope or without an answer, God is willing to step in. We see that throughout Scripture. It's the same thing that, that God did when he sent Jesus Christ into the world to save us. The Bible teaches us as a whole this one truth, is that we have no hope without God fixing and doing the impossible, which is to make things right between us and him. We can't do enough good stuff to be made right with God, to have a relationship with the perfect and holy God. And so it says in Ephesians 2, it says this, For it is by grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor, that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. See, for us, mankind is incapable of giving up any kind of sacrifice that will please a holy and just God. It says this in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10, because in the Old Testament, people would do sacrifices, actually animal sacrifices, and they thought that was the thing that would please God and get them back in favor with God. But it says in Hebrews 10, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure talking about God. And so God says here, we, have, we don't have any hope. And so God is, so what do we do in an impossible situation? What are these guys doing in the Well, the, 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 the wise man has said, hey, there's nothing we can do. Nobody can ask this kind of question. We just give it up. They had no hope. But we hear something different from Daniel and his friends. How does God, what does God do? The last few verses, verses 14 through 23, talk about the situation. When you are faced with an impossible situation, how do you, do, how do you deal with it? Well, the first thing you have to do is put your trust in God, not in the situation. And in verse 14 through 16, it says this. When Arioch, and he was the guy who was the king's um, lead, I guess you would call him like a bouncer, uh, he, he would take care of stuff, you know, fixer. 
uh, when, the, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, because remember, the king had said, hey, all of you guys are going to die because you can't answer the question. Daniel spoke to him, and listen to this, with wisdom and tact. Now, last week, if you weren't here, but if you were here, you remember this, I'm sure. How old was Daniel when he was taken into the kingdom, or actually taken as a captive? Probably in his middle teens, by looking at stuff. Probably in his middle teens. Okay, this is two to three years later. How old is he now? 18, 19 years old, maybe, at the oldest. How many... 18 and 19-year-olds handle stressful, stressful problems with wisdom and tact. I'm just being honest. Okay, last service we had a couple of young folks sitting down here and going like, oh, great. And I'm going like, no, no, no. I don't know any because you know what the thing is? It's been proven. If you're 18, 19 years old, your brain's not fully developed. It's not until you're like in your early 20s, believe it or not. You're free. So sometimes you're, and we always ask them, you know, why don't we trust teenagers? Well, because they're not, they're not fully developed yet, okay? They make some good decisions, but not always good decisions, you know? And some of us, it takes when they're in their 40s and 50s before we start making better decisions. But regards, the Daniel and his friends, three friends, are young. They're young. And it's amazing. It has to be a gift of God. Uh, they, they answered, Daniel spoke to him he's, he's, uh, with wisdom and tact. And he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Now, Arioch, the guy that was the king's uh, commander of the guards, what was his thing he was supposed to do? He was supposed to kill all the wise guys. Okay? He was supposed to go out. He could have done it immediately. He didn't have to do what he did. But obviously he had some kind of respect because remember last week in chapter 1, it says that as Daniel and his friends were brought up through this training school in Babylon, it says that, that actually the king himself actually did the last interview to make sure they were right. And it says he was so, he was so um, amazed at these young guys, he said that they were 10 times, it's what it says in Scripture, 10 times better at all the stuff than all, everybody else, all the other wise guys. So they'd have respect in the, in, in the community there. So Arioch must know them. And so Arioch, instead of killing him, he says, Arioch didn't explain the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time that he might interpret the dream for him. And he go in and say, I can't do this. Now, did Daniel at this point know that for certain that God was going to answer his prayer? That he was going to give him the vision for a dream? No. But he had a faith in God, a trust in God, that his God, if anybody could do it, that his God could do the impossible. And so Daniel may not have understood all that was going on, but he did believe that God could work. I thought about this, and I'm going like, well, what does that mean for me, and what does that mean for you? And, and it's this, when you find yourself in an impossible situation... And I don't know about you, but I've been in places before where I'm going like, I can't believe this is happening. When you find yourself in an impossible situation, put your trust in God who does the impossible. Because he does great things which we cannot comprehend. I love what it says in Job chapter 37 verse 5. And, and it talks about this. It says this. I love what Job says. He says, God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. And he does great things beyond our understanding. 
I mean, God does things that we can't think. We think, I don't care how smart you are. Our minds are so small compared to the infinite mind of God. And he can, and has power to do things. So when, when you're in an impossible situation, you know, you can try all you want to. And that's our first deal, to try to fix that ourselves. When you're in an impossible situation, realize if you're a follower of Christ, you have a resource that nobody else has who doesn't follow Christ. And that's God. And so at that point, you need to connect with God. And how do you connect with God? You connect with God like Daniel did in prayer. Because in verses 17 and 18, it says this, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now those are the Hebrew names of the three guys that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? For some reason, all the time growing up, I shared this last week, I always heard them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard those three names. Those are their Babylonian names that has to do with their, that try to turn them away from God. So really, their real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He said he turns to his three friends, all of them, all of them once again, same age he is, young. He urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. See, Daniel not only took the situation to God in prayer, he joined in with others. He realized that when two or three are gathered together in prayer, it kind of multiplies the effects of prayer. But the thing that's is true is this. Daniel didn't go down and sit down and try to figure out a five-point plan to try to, try to convince you know, the king to, to change his mind. He simply went to God in prayer. Daniel recognized his own inability in the circumstances and turned to God in confidence, expecting the Lord to meet his need. When we are faced with an impossible situation, let's not forget that we have a God who is rich in mercy and love, and because of that, we can go to him and be confident in prayer. We may not like the answer he gives us, because the answer he gives us is always going to be the best answer, not our answer always time, and sometimes... We're not fully developed either. I don't care if we're more than, you know, 20. But the, the reality is we can't understand. But in Matthew 7, 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. See, once we've taken the situation to the, to the Lord in prayer, then what we need to do is do the thing that we so seldom do. What do we usually do when we, you know, when you, when you go to an impossible situation, you're going through stress, and you take it to prayer, what do you keep doing? You just keep praying, 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 praying. You keep talking. We never listen. I'll just tell you this. One of the hardest things for most of us is to give something to God in prayer and then wait. Is that not true? It's true for me. I mean, a number of years ago, I still, I was at a place, and I've shared this before here, and if you're fairly new to Great Oaks, you've not heard this before, but a um, number of years ago, before I came to Great Oaks, uh, 14 years ago, I came here, and um, I'd been in, in a church in Virginia, and I was struggling. It was, it, was a, it was a church I'd been there at this point in time, it was two years before I came here, 11 years at that point. It was an older traditional church that we're going through, we were trying to make some transitions, and I want to tell you, Bless anybody that can make that happen. It doesn't happen too, too often. But I was at the place of thinking about, I can just tell you this, giving up in ministry. I was just going like, man, man, I just, I can't do this. It's impossible. I can't do this. And I got, I've prayed about it, and I've prayed about it, and I've prayed about it. I need to do something different, so I want to hear what you have to say. 
And so I decided to do something I'd never done in my life. And, and so there was this thing that came up. It was the, 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 some people, and I was uh, part of the Southern Baptist Convention in, in Virginia, and, and uh, they had this thing. It was called a gathering of silence. Doesn't that sound cool? Doesn't that sound boring? The gathering of silence. It was a, it was a retreat, three-day retreat for pastors. And, and, and it was kind of like, you know, getting, it was called subtitles, getting in touch with God. You know, I thought, oh, well, I'll make some great teaching, whatever. I found out the whole deal is this. I get up there, and I'm in this beautiful place up in the, up in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, about an hour from where I lived. And, and I was up there at this retreat center. It's a huge retreat center. It probably, normally their dining hall would probably seat 500. And, you know, it's this really nice place to go. And it's away from everything. It's right next to the Appalachian Trail, the whole deal. And, and, and um, as I was there, the, we get there at the retreat. I didn't really know what to expect. And as I went there, I, I got there that first evening. I think it was on a Wednesday night. And they give us instructions. Okay, here's the deal, folks. What you're going to do for the next three days is you're going to make a vow of silence. I thought, I'm not a monk. You're going to make a vow of silence, and from tomorrow morning it starts, from breakfast, before breakfast, through dinner, you don't talk to anybody. Because what we want you to do is we want to learn, let you learn to listen to God. And I thought, what a novel concept. That might even be in Scripture. And so for the next three, you know, let me tell you, so that night, talked to some guys, there was 25 pastors there. The next morning, we start, we go to the dining hall, and the dining hall, this 500-seat dining hall, 25 people, we can't talk to anybody. So what do we all do? Naturally, we don't sit with anybody either. We all get our meals, and we all had a table, you know, all over the place. All you did is kind of nod. I, I, I kind of thought, it must, must be like it's these monasteries where, you know, the kind of deal, you know. They do it all the time. I'm going, that would drive me crazy. And so that started that morning. And that whole day, that first whole day, man, I, I spent some time in my room, went back to my really nice room. No TV, no internet, no cell phone service, nothing. I had my Bible and a journal and me. And that whole first day, man, I was like an animal caged. I was walking around. I was trying to figure out what to do. It took me a whole day to calm down. And finally, the second day of this three-day retreat, when we did our thing and got to breakfast, the next day I went up and hiked on, a, on the Appalachian Trail and went to, found a place I'd find, found the day before. It's about two hours walk, hike up there, and found this rock formation. And I sat there the whole day after I got up there. I sat up there the rest of the day, had my lunch with me, the whole deal, and just be quiet. It took me that long to be quiet. Because we live in this high, I don't know what you call it, there's too much stuff coming in and not enough quiet. And that's what, Dan, I wondered that night when Daniel was in the room and he had prayed to God and he'd go like, God, this is an impossible situation. He and his friends, it kind of, I would think he probably just listened and go, God, I, I don't know what else to say. He just listened. And it says in verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. I wondered if God spoke to me like, like that, I'd even recognize it because I'd be talking. And in response to the prayer before the dream was revealed to Daniel, we'll talk about the dream next week, okay, by the way. It's a cool dream. It's weird. 
I mean, I've had some weird dreams, but this was the weirdest one of all time, probably. But the reality is this, if we take the time to pray and then time to listen and time to expect God to answer, God will begin to work, work in our lives in ways that we cannot understand because he does that. That's the kind of God. He's the one that can resolve the impossible situations. And so I thought about how often do I pray, do I really expect God to even answer? I mean, if you want to read a really, you know, the Bible is so real that people are, are shown in all their fallacies as well. And if you want to read a story that's truth in Scripture, but it talks about that, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 was about this guy named Peter, and Peter had been put in prison, and all the people in his, in his community, in his church, like, you know, if one of, our guys, one of you guys got sent to prison, not going to happen, right? And, and, and was, you was prison, you know, wrongly, and we all get together, and we begin to pray. I mean, how much will we think that you'll be, you know, escaped from prison? Well, he, 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 they, they're having this prayer meeting, Acts chapter 12. They're having this prayer meeting, and what happens? Peter is visited by an angel who takes him out of the prison. And he goes to this place. It tells us in Scripture. It's a really cool story. He takes them in Scripture, and he goes to this place where they're having the prayer meeting. They have the door locked because they don't want anybody to get in. I guess it's a private prayer meeting. I don't know what the deal is. And one of the servants, her name is Rhoda. There is a Rhoda in Scripture. That doesn't sound like a biblical name, does it? And Rhoda comes to the door. And Rhoda comes to the door, and, and she hears Peter. He's knocking on the door, and he hears Peter, and, he's, and she recognizes his voice, and she's so excited she forgets to unlock the door. And she runs back into the people that are praying for, for, for Peter's, uh, Peter's uh, you know, to get out of prison. And she tells them, and guess what they do? They don't go, oh, praise God. No, they do. They go, no, that's no way. It's no way. It can't be him. It's Peter's angel. It's something else. That's what he'd say. I mean, the people in the Bible that prayed sometimes didn't expect God to answer their prayers, and he'd answer it right then. So how often when we pray do we even expect God to answer the prayers? But Daniel and his friends did. And they were open enough and they listened enough for God to begin to change the things, the impossible situation into a possible situation which we'll learn next week. And finally, this, this, part, of chapter, uh, this part of the chapter, the first, first few verses, concludes by says this. Praise be to the name of God, verse 20. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light, light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And so what does he do at the end of this? You know, he doesn't go, uh, you know, Daniel doesn't go, look at me, God worked through me. Aren't I cool? So often, sometimes in, the, in Christian life, God answers the prayer, and what do we do? We give ourselves a pat on the back. You know, look how many people I brought to Christ. How many notches are on my belt? Folks, no one brings anybody to Christ except God's Spirit. We may be used by God, but we got to be careful. But what Daniel does at the end, he gives praise where praise is due. Daniel closed his, his, his praise with thanking God that God had revealed the dream to him 
that God was a God who did the impossible. James 4.3 says this, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. We've got to be careful. We can pray, and we can pray in the wrong way because we want things our way. But God wants to do things his way. So, let me conclude this whole thing of saying this. This chapter, I think, I don't know about you guys, I hope you go back and read it again, and then read the rest of chapter 2 for next week, to put it all together. We'll tie it together next week. But remember this, number one. Remember when confronted with the impossible, don't seek to do the impossible, but seek the God who does the impossible. That should be our first response in all things in life. What we need to do is simply make ourselves available for him to use and then put our trust in him regardless of the outcome. Daniel didn't know for certain, and we'll find this true as we read through the book of Daniel. Daniel never knows for certain what God's answer to the prayer is going to be, but he, but he trusts God anyway. And secondly, the person that God uses is the person who is totally surrendered and willing to pray a prayer that is really a dangerous prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It's kind of like praying beforehand. God, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm good with it. That's trust. Believing that God always has our best in mind. See, the same God in heaven who answered the prayers of Daniel and his friends is still waiting for us to pray and bring burdens to him so that he can answer our prayers as well. Are we willing to trust God to take things to him, to listen for his answer, and believe he can do it? Because I believe that's what this scripture talks about, along with lots of other scriptures as well. Let's pray.